One of the most significant literary events of the century, the discovery of manuscript pages containing early drafts of Marcel Proust's In Search of Lost Time, put an end to a decades-long search for the Proustian Grail. The 75 folios and other unpublished manuscripts, published by Harvard University Press, presents these folios here for the first time in English, along with 17 other unpublished texts. Extensive commentary and notes by the Proust scholar Nathalie Moriac dyer offer insightful critical analysis. UK customers can order their copy with a 25% discount using the code TLS25 at www.hup.harvard.edu until the end of July. Recommended retail price is £26.95 and shipping rates apply. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark and Lucy Dallas, the TLS's arts editor, is here with me. Hi, Lucy. Hi, Alex. How are you? Well, I'm fine. We've been kind of crisscrossing and missing one another, haven't we? I we mean, really have. Yeah. Spiritually, obviously, and emotionally, always. <laughs> but we've been really logistically missing each other as we navigate the UK in full festival mode. It is unfair, isn't it? You're being polite here because I did one thing and you did about <laughs> 25,000 things. But as I arrived for my one thing, I think you were just leaving your 24,000 thing to go off to the next thing. In fact, so listeners, as I arrived at the Hay Festival, I think Alex was probably talking to Margaret Atwood and was it and Elif Shafak about Salman Rushdie as I yes. arrived on my yes. uh, coach, I regret to say, because of the train strikes. That is true. That was my crowning, my final event. And indeed, a sort of really crowning moment for me. I loved doing it. I recorded a little interview with Salman Rushdie a couple of weeks ago, and we played that out to the audience. And then Margaret Atwood, Elif Shafak and Douglas Stewart talked oh, yes, about it. And then I got into my car and drove to my goddaughter's wedding. So what can I say? Would you like to hear a little bit of my itinerary? Yes, please. Tell us your exhausting itinerary. You do it so we don't have to. It was stupid. <laughs> it's one of those things where I got home and I kind of went, I did it. I can't believe I did it. And my husband just said, it's not It's not a badge of honour. You know, It's not a good thing to do these kind of madcap things and then just be pleased. I went very, what can I say? I was sort of in full Iron Man kind of mode. It was stupid, really. <laughs> but I essentially, I got into my car in Ireland a couple of weeks ago. I drove to the port near where I live in Ireland, got on the boat, went to Wales, stopped over there for a quick breather, went to Charleston, where there was a wonderful literary festival. I talked to Vince Cable and David Dimbleby there. I went to Hay and I talked to Tan Tuan Eng, fantastic event, Fergus Butler Galley, Maxine Mayfung Chung, Caleb Azuma Nelson. Then I thought, I can't just stay in Hay. This is too easy. I've been here for a few nights. I drove to London to interview Sebastian Barry. That was great. I went back to Hay because I had to talk to the super vet. Why wouldn't you want to do that? Oh, gosh. Yeah. And Margaret Atwood et al. But I also took part in a really lovely event, which was a sort of obviously, for obvious reasons, you know, hasty addition to the programme. It was a celebration of the life 
and work of Martin Amos. And it was just so moving. All sorts of people got up and just talked about you know, his publishers, publicists, other writers, other novelists, scholars, critics. It was just really, really wonderful. So I had a fabulous, fabulous time, but I may lie down in a darkened room for a little <laughs> while now, I'm thinking. You're in demand. You've read all the books and we need you to talk about them. But I you have talked so. about them for the past two weeks. <laughs> no, I really have. But, you know, there's no sort of better thing to do. I mean, it's really kind of fantastically good fun. Fantastically good fun. But, yeah. I mean, Hey, I thought was amazing this year, actually. And I'm honestly, mm. you know, it just had a great sort of energy to it. And also the weather was lovely. It did. It was very full and very sort of engaged. The weather was unbelievable. It was like being in, it was like being in Tuscany, but much, much greener, like Tuscany with the green turned right up or something. Actually, I haven't been to Tuscany for a million years, so I can't remember what it looks like. I know, it was but like that was being a very somewhere... good metropolitan liberal elite thing to <laughs> I say. know, no, it sounded a bit like that, didn't it? And then I suddenly thought, I've got, I can't, got no idea what Tuscany looks like. It looked like beautiful, beautiful Wales in bright sunshine and blue skies just all day it was amazing I was getting sunburned because I'd stupidly not prepared properly so yeah no it was it was really nice wasn't it there was a lot of at the risk of sounding a bit woo woo there was a very nice vibe it was a really nice vibe and I had a very good time and you know I think if anybody didn't get there I'm right to say I think that you can probably pick up lots and lots of events on the hay player yes, and yes indeed on this podcast oh my goodness I've forgotten to tell you something else that happened to me mm -hmm. while I was away it makes me sound really faithless because in fact I mean this is podcast promiscuity I was asked to go and talk about Martin Amos as one of a number of people on another podcast <gasps> oh dear I didn't think there were any other podcasts I thought there was just us I can't believe you went and did that for someone else I did but you know what my fidelity to this podcast was born out in a way that I actually think was quite, well, I wouldn't say it was very Martin Amos. It was a little bit John Self, I'd say, because it was very much when I was on the road and I did it from the car park at Membry Services. <laughs> I can hear our producer going wild in the background when she thinks of me. I had to sit in my sweltering hot car, which obviously as a responsible citizen was, you know, engine turned off, so no air con, with sweat pouring down me and talk about Martin Amos and at one point a fellow wandered across the front of my car into some bushes and well you know really himself he did he did a wee and I thought this is quite Amos can I say listeners that doesn't happen at the TLS podcast it really doesn't it really doesn't we allow people to podcast in comfort I mean it was a little bit like fear and loathing in Las Vegas only in Wiltshire and if the drugs were kind of a lot of Snickers bars and HRT patches, that is basically <laughs> what my journey was like. And in fact, when I finally got home, we went through customs coming home. And, you know, as often happens, can you open your boot of your car? And I honestly think I've been in this car, living in this car for two weeks. It also accumulated an awful lot of stuff. And I think the customs officer just thought, this is a biohazard. And he said, on you go, madam. You didn't just chuck a match into the boot and just see what happened. I mean, really, really, it was. Anyway, I'm home now. It, it's the life of the mind and not the motorway for the rest of the summer for me. Many, many books, much talking about books. And Splendid. I'm so pleased that we've managed to capture 
some of the hay experience and host it here on this podcast. And indeed, we've got some some old friends, haven't we? Some of our, our colleagues, Lucy, and you met up and had a chat with them. I did. And we can, I think, listen to a little bit of it now. Okay, here we are with some ambient hay noise in the background at Hay Festival with two voices that our listeners will know and love. The first belonging to Toby Lishtig. Hello, Lucy. And the second belonging to Theal and Anutsi, who used to be the host of the podcast. <laughs> hello, hello. My voice is somewhat different probably to, to listeners might remember. It's a few notches lower because <laughs> I'm just recovering from laryngitis. <laughs> But we're very, very happy to have you. Um, and I'm just going to ask you very quickly, because there's other things to do. You've got events to do. You've got dinners to eat. You've got drinks to have. Uh, I'm just going to ask you what, you're, what you've been to and what you're doing. Well, I saw a fantastic event earlier today. Um, Sarah Raven was in conversation with... Who was it again? Oh, Lucy Dallas. <laughs> and it was wonderful. And we learned a lot about which vegetables you should and shouldn't grow and which ones you should go to the supermarket. Actually, never the supermarket, but your local supplier to get because they're too difficult. Asparagus, for example. Don't bother trying to grow asparagus. Just get it from a nice local supplier. So that was a wonderful event. And have I been to anything else? That's a good question. Yes, I did. I saw the wonderful... Now, what's her name? Alex Clark. There you go. You're noticing a pattern here. She did a wonderful event last night. She was interviewing Margaret Atwood and Douglas Stewart and Elif Shafak about Salman Rushdie and his work and uh, his entire career and also what happened to him last year very awfully. And she had previously interviewed Salman Rushdie over video link and we saw that interview. So that sort of kicked off proceedings and it was wonderful to see him looking very well and he was very wry and humorous talking about his new book, Victory City. Uh, and that was great. Um, terrific. And what are you going to do? What am I going to do? Uh, I'm going to have some dinner at some point. <laughs> no, I, I kind of meant you professionally. <laughs> But thank you. So tomorrow uh, in the morning, I'll be interviewing three Ukrainian writers and human rights activists who have been documenting the war over the past, well, past 15, 16 months, but also over the past many years, because, of course, the war itself has been going on since at least 2014, if not before, in other forms. Um, one of them is called Serhi Jadan, um, who won last year's EBRD prize for his novel The Orphanage, a fantastic novel. Uh, there's Halinia Kruk, who is a poet and a professor of medieval literature. And then Oleksandra Matvichuk, who is, uh, well, her, her organisation, the, uh, the Centre for Civil Liberties, uh, of which she is director, won last year's Nobel Peace Prize. And it's a completely fascinating organisation. It started off in the late noughties, I think 2007, 2008, to basically to pressure the Ukrainian government to be more accountable and more democratic, which essentially meant a bit less Russian and a bit less Russian influenced. But it has since morphed very awfully and necessarily into an organisation that is documenting mass human rights violations and war crimes. And one of the things that Alexandra is currently agitating for is a kind of a Nuremberg trials sort of war crime tribunal before the war ends, not waiting for it to end. So in their different ways, all of these people are obviously experiencing and confronting the war because they are living it, but they are also writing about it and thinking about how to document it and really sort of writing its, its first draft of history in real time. And I think it should be a really fascinating event. Um, and then in a very different key, uh, in the afternoon I'll be interviewing Eleanor Catton, the Booker Prize winning novelist, um, 
She won the Booker Prize about 10 years ago for her, her novel The Luminaries, and she has got a new novel out called Burnham Wood, which is totally brilliant. I think I mentioned it on the podcast when I last came on a few weeks ago. Um, it's set in present-day New Zealand, and it's about rapacious capitalists extracting minerals from the earth when they shouldn't be doing that, and what happens when they run up against a group of guerrilla gardeners. Um, so I'm, I'm saying that looking at Lucy because I know that she's a big fan of guerrilla gardening, or at least gardening. Um, very, very good. Um, really propulsive, immersive novel. And I'm very much looking forward to talking to Eleanor then. That just sounds completely fascinating. And I'm very sorry that I won't be able to, um, I won't be able to go and see those events, I'm afraid. But we're going to hear, hear about them later. And now, Fia, what are you going to be up to? Um, well, tonight I'm, um, I'm hosting a strange, frankly mad um, event, <laughs> which is a collaboration between Hay Festival and um, the Eurovision Song Contest, which is, of course, hosted in, in Liverpool this year on, on Ukraine's behalf. Um, and the idea is to kind of capture some of that madness, but bring it to the topic of books specifically so to sort of do for books what the Eurovision Song Contest does for music in its mad way um, which is to celebrate it so I think the kind of the idea is to yeah to celebrate these books and 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 37 countries the public has nominated I should say this has all been started by a kind of a public call out to um to people to nominate their books they're the they're kind of the books that somehow represent uh, one of the 37 countries uh, that, who participate, that participate in Eurovision. And so we have this long list compiled by the public, voted through by the public, of, of books. And the, the criteria were, um, so they had to be published after 1956, which is the year that the Eurovision Song Contest was, was started. Um, they have to be fiction, uh, but that could be fiction for any age category so we've got a weird weird blend of, of of books that you would really expect to see there um like ismail kadare's uh um palace of dreams um and uh fernando pessoa for lisbon for for portugal um his his very lisbon centered book of uh, the book of disquiet we've got that for for portugal We've got, um, yeah, all sorts of, of, of uh, Elena Ferrante for Italy. Um, but then we have these strange kind of curveballs, which are books that I've never heard of, um, or books that are for, for young adults in particular, which have passed me by because I'm not their target their target reader. So we've got Alice Oseman for the UK um, and her, her Heartstopper. Um, I think it's a trilogy now, um, uh, graphic novels. Uh, and then we've got thrillers. It's this, yeah. It's it's a it's a bizarre list, but it's exactly what you would expect when you when you when you ask the public to give their nominations. It's just whoever is most passionate, whoever kind of gets their point across, um, gets to see their book nominated on this list. So we've got these 37 books for 37 countries. We're going to work our way through those. There'll be readings. There'll be, I want to say they'll be singing and dancing, but they really won't. Certainly not on my part. Um, I'm wearing a black dress, weirdly, so I look very much like I've come to bury these books rather than praise them, <laughs> but I am here to praise them. Um, what else? Then after that, I will crumple into a small heap. Someone will scoop me up and take me home. And then tomorrow, um, tomorrow I have two more events. 
first one is um, so I'll be talking to the novelist Kevin Jared H uh, Hussein, who, who I think his novel Hungry Ghosts was. Am I right in thinking it was reviewed in the TLS recently? Yes, it was reviewed by Kate McLaughlin, and she loved it. That's all we need to know. It's a very good novel um, set in his native Trinidad, um, and it's a book about injustice and inequality, extreme poverty, colonial legacy, um, violence. And similar themes kind of ripple through the book, uh, the novelist, the, the novel by my other guest, who is Brenda Navarro, who is a Mexican novelist um, and writer and activist and academic. Uh, and her novel is Empty Houses. So both of the books have this, this kind of a sense of absence of emptiness, the hungry ghosts and empty houses. There's a kind of a, a, an absence in their core. And, um, so we'll be talking about, about those themes, about missing things, what's missing and what can be done and who suffers. And So that will be cheery. Um, and, then, and then I'm someone's talking to me for some reason. Someone's talking to me um, and the Colombian novelist uh, Pilar Quintana. Um, Daniel Han is, is chairing a conversation between us two um, on the sort of on the subject of family histories and how your parents fuck you up, I guess. <laughs> Can I just interject here? I have to say, someone's talking to Thea about her wonderful book. Yeah, it's not at all about how your parents fuck you up. <laughs> What's the title? Oh, the title is Dandelion. Thank you. I'm glad you're doing some, uh, <laughs> some selling here. Yes, my book is called Dandelions. And, uh, Pilar... and it's brilliant. <laughs> and Pilar Quintana's book is called The Abyss. Another, another, another gaping absence there. I don't know if there's some weird, sad theme going on here. But you came, you talked to us last time you were on the podcast. You talked to us about your lovely book. And though you have now sadly moved on, you are still going to come back and talk to us, aren't you? You're not going to disappear completely. Can I, can I hold you to that on record? If unbelievably, after today's shambles, you will, you will have me back. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm, I'm part of the extended family. I think forever. Of course. So thank you very much. And now I'm going to leave you alone and let you go and drink and eat and all that fun stuff. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. That sounds brilliant. Let's listen to a bit of Toby interviewing Eleanor Catton. In a way, I guess this is your most political novel to date, perhaps. Maybe you'll disagree with me. Um, it partly, I think, from what I've read, uh, has its roots in a media firestorm that you were engulfed in a few years ago in New Zealand, um, which you yourself described as a jingoistic national, tr national tantrum. That's <laughs> a fantastic phrase. Um, I, possibly that's been overblown. I don't know, so you can correct me. Is, can you just tell us a little bit about that flare-up and, and, and how this novel is in any way related to it? Yeah, sure. Oh, thank you so much for being here. I'm so thrilled to, um, uh, to be here and to be uh, meeting you for the first time. Uh, in, in early 2015, I, I attended the Jaipur Literary Festival in India and um, made some really quite mild, I, I thought, remarks about my country's government at the time. I, from memory, I said something about them, the politicians being shallow and obsessed with um, profit and uh, short-term gains um, over kind of long-term anything. And um, quite incredibly, the Prime Minister of the country responded on, on breakfast television. So he used his weekly spot on breakfast television to um, reprimand me to the, to the nation and essentially to kind of to tell New Zealanders not to listen to me. Um, 
he, he called me a fictional writer at this time, um, which I hope will be written on my gravestone. Um, that was kind of the one really wonderful thing that came out of this. Um, but th- as often happens in, in New Zealand, um, th- there's a kind of a form of two-track politics. I don't know if you're familiar with the term that has been very much borrowed from the United States and, and New Zealand. I, I'm pretty sure it's in effect here in, in, in different ways, where um, there, there's kind of the... Uh, the official kind of quasi-reasonable, um, uh, slightly maybe dog-whistly um, account that's coming from the, from the um, politicians of the day. And then there's, a, there's another kind of track of, of, of much more venomous kind of tabloidy, uh, uh, I don't know, <laughs> assault really, that's, that's kind of happening on, on, on political blogs and on um, uh, radio stations and so on. And so what happened was that this this kind of quite incredible remark of the Prime Minister is to kind of single me out um, to, to tell New Zealanders to, uh, that, that I didn't really know what I was talking about and, and, and that they shouldn't, they shouldn't be paying any attention to me, was then picked up and, and magnified on um, uh, talkback radio and on various blogs. And so I was quite memorably called um, an ungrateful hua uh, by a... Uh, a uh, uh, talk show host, um, and he, he then later explained to befuddled New Zealanders that hua is a Maori word, which was news to many Maori New Zealanders, um, and that he, in, in, his, in his world, um, in his explanation, he said it was a synonym for scoundrel, but it doesn't really take much to you know, wonder, wonder why, why he might have used that word. I, he was called, I was called a traitor to the country. I was called the Green Taliban. It was, it was, it was, it was kind of insane. Like, looking back on it now, it's, it feels laughable. But the, the scale of the, um, the, the, the outrage, the, the kind of think pieces that were manufactured, just, the, the, you know, the, this stayed in the news for, I mean, we, weeks, even, even months. Do you think um, the fact that you had won the Booker Prize sort of made you, in people's eyes, public property and therefore some... Do you, do you think that kind of magnified that? Yeah, well, the, I, I do. I think that, um, you know, one, one thing about that, this Prime Minister in, in question, who I get my kind of petty revenge on in this novel, um, he... Uh, he no, knighthoods were abolished in New Zealand um, by the last uh, kind of... Uh, big Labour government, the Helen Clark government, and um, Sir John Key brought them back in order to um, award himself one on, on, on leaving office, and so I kind of, I, I make fun of him for doing that in this book. Um, but in New Zealand, uh, the Prime Minister is also allowed to take on a ministerial portfolio, which is, which is a little bit strange, uh, I think, and, and, and often what a Prime Minister will do is use, use this as a way to kind of... Um, cement their legacy, they'll, they'll choose a portfolio that really matters to them and, and, um, and, and kind of take charge of it. And uh, Sir John Key, as we must call him, uh, chose the Ministry of Tourism as his portfolio when he was Prime Minister. And I, I always found that a, a very peculiar thing for him to have done. Um, the fact that as the Minister of Tourism, you are answerable mostly to non-citizens. You're, you're thinking about the country... Uh, you know about how it appears from the outside, and um, you know I, I just feel like that that kind of chimes with the the job of a, of a prime minister in a very odd kind of way. But I think partly that that era set up this expectation in New Zealand that anybody who achieved any sort of um, exposure overseas 
was, was kind of required by national consensus to paint the country in the best possible light. There was this kind of requirement of, of um, kind of boosterism, I suppose. And, and, and people would get very, very cross with, with, with anybody who used, used their platform for any other reason than to tell the world how wonderful New Zealand um, was, you know, and, and, and wh- why you should be all spending your tourist dollars there. And so your response was to write a novel about an incredibly corrupt New Zealand. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes. Totally understandable. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I think, I mean, it's, it's funny, I can look back on this time now and just feel, you know, kind of astonished that it really happened, but it, it, it did have a, a, a profound emotional effect on me. I became very depressed for a long time and I... I um, yeah, I just, I, I kind of really lost the will to write. I lost, I lost the will to read, which I'd never, I'd never lost before. And uh, around about this time, I'd gone um, uh, to Amsterdam. I had a short residency at the University of Amsterdam, uh, at the uh, city of Amsterdam. And when I arrived in the city, um, it turned out that the flat where I was going to be staying was up um, above a, a wonderful English language bookstore that. Um, in solidarity with some recent protests at the University of Amsterdam, had just totally um, filled all of the shelves with protest literature, activist manifestos, um, you know, books about economic and political theory. And I was kind of coming in this quite fragile state to this this residency. I didn't really know what I was going to write about, but I I, I had this worry in me that I that, that maybe what the prime minister had said about me was true, that maybe I didn't know what I was talking about, that I'd, I'd called him neoliberal, maybe I didn't really know what, what that word really meant. And so I, I kind of threw myself into this project of reading. I read a lot of political theory for the first time, and eco- um, economic theory, um, kind of feminist um, works of um, economics and that, those, that kind of thing. And in, in a way, it, it, it became... It kind of became the compost out of which this this novel was born. And did you start writing the book then, or did the writing process begin a lot? It was it, after it, it was a lot. It was a lot later, actually. It right. was um, it, it it had to do with the the election of Donald Trump in the US and the um, the Brexit vote here in the United Kingdom. That that that, that kind of feeling in twenty sixteen in particular. Um, I don't know that the. the, the the, the future was suddenly kind of rushing at us very fast and that all of the things that we had relied on, that were kind of political institutions or political truisms that we'd relied on, were, were kind of being thrown out the window seemingly every day. There was kind of a new, a new normal that was being established every day. And so it was around about that time, um, I, I, I knew that I wanted to write something that engaged with politics in some way. I, I, I felt... I think to say responsibility is, is almost a little bit wrong. I didn't really feel a responsibility to do it, but I felt this kind of urgency, this, mm. this desire to do it. Um, and against this backdrop um, of kind of political uncertainty, I suppose, I, I went back to Shakespeare's Macbeth and, and reread it, um, kind of w- with an inkling that maybe it might have something to say about the about the contemporary political moment. And it was, it was through kind of re- getting reacquainted with that play that the, that the idea for this book came. And I, I definitely want to talk about the Macbeth references a bit later on. We, we've dived into the novel a bit, but yeah, that's a really incredibly interesting aspect of it. I gave a brief praise in the beginning, but I wonder if you could just give us a little bit more about how the action's laid out. And if anyone's worried about spoilers here, by the way, that we learn quite a lot in the first bit, but then our expectations are upended at least twice. So <laughs> we can just stick with the first bit. Um, but if you'd like to kind of tell us about the, those three central nodes, your 
your Robert Lemoyne um, and then your, your pest control magnet and then Burnham Wood, which is this guerrilla gardening collective. Yeah, great. So um, in, in this book, Burnham Wood is the, the name that this guerrilla gardening collective give to themselves. So they're a, a group of um, uh, kind of broad, kind of anti-capitalists. They're uh, chiefly young uh, who go about... Uh, abandoned and neglected spaces in the South Island of New Zealand and um, plant edible gardens and they're, they're kind of struggling to survive really they've, they've reached this point that a lot of left wing organisations reach where they have to it, it's kind of a, a, a sort of a crossroads, they have to decide whether they're going to maybe compromise on some of their more um, hardline uh, beliefs and join the conventional economy as we know it or whether they're going to stay true to those um, principles and risk their own extinction or, or irrelevance, uh, political irrelevance. Um, and, the, and there are kind of different factions within, within the group itself. Um, and so the, the, the idea for the book came about... Um, out of a kind of a, it was it was a kind of a formal ambition for the book, I suppose. I thought it would be, it would be interesting, to design the book um, around multiple points of view. So each of these characters are, are, are a point of view in the novel. We kind of inhabit their consciousnesses as the book um, uh, rotates. Um, but where you would, hopefully, in my my kind of ideal. Um, in, in, in my mind when I kind of set about writing it. Ho- hopefully what would happen is that you would approach the book feeling quite smug and, and complacent in your political beliefs, as we all do these days, I think, and um, would be aware that because the title is taken from Macbeth and the epigraph is taken from Macbeth, that you'd be kind of on the lookout for who is the Macbeth of the novel. Um, but I wanted to structure the book in such a way that any one of the characters could have been a plausible contender for that role. Um, so I kind of approached it almost kaleidoscopically. I wanted each one, each character to have a kind of a Lady Macbeth figure, this, somebody who was goading them on, who would ultimately you know, become collateral to their ambition. Um, they needed to have, each needed to have some sort of a witches, some sort of a tempting force um, that, was, that was a temptation towards a, a position of certainty in, in some way. Um, and then each needed to have a Burnham Wood, which is to say a, a kind of a, this fatal blind spot, something that they, they didn't feel was possible. Um, and, 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 and in believing that to be impossible, that, that a kind of a certain outcome to be impossible, they, they um, kind of lose the ability to think flexibly or think creatively, and, and that kind of ushers in their downfall, I suppose. Yeah, so the book, the book was very much born out of this, uh, kind of the scheme of it, kind of came first. Um, but I, I knew that if, you know, I, I wanted the book to be a thriller. I wanted it to be um, kind of rollicking fun and surprising and just kind of relentless and, and, and to kind of pull you into the future um, in, in the sense of creating, I, hopefully, a, a, this kind of desperate desire to know what happens next and to, this desire to be surprised, which I think is so much about why we come to thrillers. You know, we want, we kind of want to be bamboozled by the book, and it's we're, we're so grateful when we are. You know, and, and we are. Um, by the way. <laughs> um, and so, I, yeah, because I wanted it to be um, very much a character-driven thriller, I, I had this this form in my in the back of my mind, but I. I, I knew I'd, I. I think this is actually a lot of this comes from having studied Jane Austen, um, and, and studied Emma in particular. I knew that I needed to sort of bury the design of the book. So, whereas, what, what in the Luminaries, my uh, previous novel, had been a kind of an exoskeleton. Mm-hmm. It had been very, very, very visible. This kind of very baroque structure that was 
quite obviously kind of determining the action. Um, I wanted all of that to be subterranean. and Taking the right. scaffolding down. The, yeah. Right, yeah. 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 yeah, I mean, I think that it's one of the things I just so um, love about Emma as a novel that you know, it's, 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 such a, it's such a peopled novel, it's such a felt novel that you can't help but fall in love with the characters and you can't help but feel ashamed when Emma is, when Emma is shamed and kind of laugh at it because it's hilarious and, you know, these people feel so real. And so you'd be forgiven for thinking that it's, it's not really a designed book, it's just a book that follows the, you know, it follows a character who you know and you love. But in fact, when you start dissecting it and taking it apart, it's, it's, it's almost like a game of chess. You know, like if every uh, predicament that any one character finds themselves in will find either a mirror or a reversal or an echo in another character's predicament. Um, so, you know, e- Emma has lost her mother. Frank Churchill has lost his mother. Jane Fairfax has lost both her parents. Harriet Smith doesn't know who either of her parents are. And so this, this quality of motherlessness is kind of turned, you know, it's, 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 it's presented in, these, in four very different ways. Um, but, you'd, but you'd never know it when you, when, you, when you read it. You only kind of appreciate it when you reread it. That was Toby Lishtig interviewing Eleanor Catton at the Hay Festival. And still to come on the show, we hear Lucy in conversation with the doyenne of garden produce, Sarah Raven. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark, and obviously we weren't going to go to Hay and not get some kind of gardening angle. I interviewed Sarah Raven back in April at the Cambridge Literary Festival, and obviously you needed to do the same, Lucy. <laughs> You'd be madness if you didn't. I, it just makes me seem like I have to do it because you did, but I was very, <laughs> very keen to do it. We well, know you had to do it because we really need to talk about gardens at all times we do we do and we certainly did she was brilliant she told us what to grow what not to grow which nobody tells you nobody tells you that and she yes she told us all sorts of wonderful things the event was sponsored by the TLS so we did also talk about books but basically you can ask her anything and she will be extremely knowledgeable and also very funny about it well we've both talked to Sarah Raven now let's listen to you doing it much more recently I have to ask about the literary side of things, um, being from the TLS. Um, And in 2014, you published a book about Vita Sackville-West's creation of the garden at Sissinghurst, um, partly because you lived there, because your husband is her grandson. Um, And so you you sort of... It feels a bit like half you and half her. Did it feel like you were writing it with her or she was kind of over your shoulder as you did it? Well, the funny thing is I lived there for... 
eight and a half or nine years when we were bringing up the children. And um, after Adam's father died, we had to, it's part of the National Trust rules, really. Um, and when I lived there, I couldn't bear the whole, I didn't read any Vita because I felt almost like it would be a bit stalkery <laughs> and a bit kind of like, oh, you know, everyone's going to think I'm going to morph into Vita Sapper West. Mm. And so I just, I really kept it very much at arm's length. But living in the spaces that she created and the garden that she'd primarily created, but with her husband, Haji, um, I just increasingly thought she was remarkable, actually. <coughs> and only when I was leaving, I knew we were leaving, was I able to absolutely dive into all her writing and particularly garden writing, which I dabbled in. But I just found, I still think it's absolutely brilliant. Mm. And her, her sort of tone and her turn of phrase and her description in the garden is so vivid and I just completely fell in love with it and I just felt it was a shame in a way that my generation of gardeners, my mother's, she was completely the sort of guru but in my generation um, we'd kind of lost her in touch with her a bit so I just I just copied great slabs of her, what I felt was her best writing um, and sort of filled it in around the edges um, of what had ha happened since really. It's um, interesting because I didn't th to, to hear that you had to wait until you knew you were going yeah. because I I didn't know whether you were kind of thinking about her and reading her stuff and being in her garden and precisely whether that would be a bit yeah exactly bit the opposite actually yeah and but also I just think the the thing about her I mean she was an extremely difficult woman as I'm sure you all know and not known for her niceness but um, she was a brilliant interior designer I mean just mm. absolutely brilliant um, and I was living in these interiors and. And they were incredibly beautiful and moving. And, and she was a brilliant garden designer. But obviously, the garden had changed much, much more than the house because the house had only been lived in by her family, whereas the garden had been gardened by um, several different head gardeners since she died. So in a way, the integrity of the house was also what I felt was really important to write about. Mm, mm. There's a lovely phrase that, that, that she uses and that you quote, that what she likes in the garden, well, she likes you to cram things in. Yeah, cram, it? cram, every yeah. chink and cranny. Fill everything with whatever you've got. That's a good phrase. But she also likes fine carelessness. Yeah, which I love you, that. You, yeah, is that, is that um, easier for flowers than for veg, I would have thought? I mean, it's not easy bit. anyway, though. Yeah, but... But I definitely use that as an absolute guiding principle. I'm not a neat person. Um, <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't have a neat garden. Um, and, I mean, I was like that anyway, but, of course, that's also why I was quite attracted to her very boho approach. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, she, yeah, she just wasn't an avid pruner. She had this thing that she quite liked a rose of drape right over the path that might well catch her visitor's eye or in their hair. Um, and that was kind of part of it. And it should, it, she always, Christopher Lloyd said actually, but she would always um, felt that a garden was at its most beautiful a year to 18 months after the, the gardener who gardened it had died. Gosh. And it, 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 okay. it, it's because it had just gone, ah. Oh. <laughs> the garden's relaxed. Yeah. Like, okay. And she wanted that. And that's why there's a sort of, there was a tension when she got professional gardeners mm. rather than people that she sort of picked up in the street almost. Um, because it then became very much more, less amateur, and she wanted that sort of very loose feel. Um, and, I mean, other genius things I think that she um, taught me, which is that she was massively keen on roses, 
But roses, the way she pruned them, which is bending them down so that the rose tissue stem is under strain, it then pushes up more flower buds. So you get a much flowerier dome and you get flowers right down here. But so that's the way she liked her roses trained. But the trouble is if you have that upon that upon that, it's rather bosomy, which might be nice in some ways, but it's a little bit too roundy roundy. And so she wrote quite often and put into practice Delphiniums, Lupins, Eremurus, Foxgloves as minarets to balance the curve of the dome. Mm. And I love that. And I completely copy that. Mm. And I copy it a lot with making um, plant supports. So we only harvest our own wood because we're lucky enough to have a wood. And so we use hazel, birch and willow from the wood. And those are our minarets in the veg garden. Mm. Mm. It's, like, it's like an architectural. She does talk about architecture as well, doesn't she, when yeah. she's doing the garden? It's like an architectural yeah. way of yeah. thinking about it. But it is just getting that verticality um, versus horizontality, which I think she's genius on that. Mm. Um, but you don't always agree with her, do you, despite her, uh, her enormous influence. I was wondering what the deal is with August. She makes a point of saying she hates August. She yes. thinks it's terrible, and you make a point of saying you love it. Why, why do you love it so much? I love it because my favourite flowers are kind of August flowers, really, because I love half-hardy annual um, plants, um, flowers mainly. I adore tomatoes more than anything, and basil, and I adore dahlias. So for me, late summer and into September, I adore fruit. I love making chutneys and jellies and jams and all that kind of stuff. Um, it's it's a, such an earthy month. I think she wanted um, a sort of a bit more crispness, and she liked fine carelessness, but she said it, she she hated being old, and she didn't like the whole idea I mean, you, you, by your 40s, you're in your late middle age, in her view. <coughs> um, Sorry, and, everyone. Um, that's, that's where we are. <laughs> and uh, August was was past late oh, middle I see. age. So August is the late middle age of the year. Well, even past it, it's oh, old see. age. <laughs> I see. And she just felt there was nothing exciting to look forward to. And, and yeah, it was the end of the gardening life, really. Right. Mm. And okay. that's why she, yeah, she wrote often about August being... Mm. Um, she's, quite, she's quite vehement about it. Yeah, she, she is. Yeah. And she just didn't like any of the plants that you have then. Right. So she, she know, didn't look her, rose, her beloved roses, David Austin hadn't been invented, so the <laughs> beloved roses would be over. Um, and so all her beloved plants, really. And she loved winter plants and spring, but she just couldn't bear any of the... I mean, there weren't so many... Because, of course, a lot of the plants that we use now um, in August, September and October are actually from South Africa. Um, you know, I mean, the, the worst species Pelagonium, so I've got to be a bit careful. I'm being a bit broad brushstroke, but all the Osteospermans, Arctotis, Gazanias, all those were imported from South Africa since Vita's day, really. So a lot of the things that we think of as wonderful in gardens are actually, mm. they weren't here. She didn't have access to yeah. them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and... In terms of, I mean, you said she's a wonderful garden writer, of course she is, and you mentioned Christopher Lloyd. Are there other gardening books that you turn to again and again, either, either for practical um, thoughts or kind of more meditative kind of...? I love Derek Jarman's book um, mm. for a kind of um, a winter book that I reread quite often. I find that very beautiful. Now, I go there quite often. I, I, I think it's very spiritful garden, but also very um, calm. 
Um, I do really, I, I actually love Christopher Lloyd's practical books, even the best. And I learned to garden with his How to Grow with Graham Rice. Um, How to Grow from Seed, which is, has no pictures, not a single picture. Mm. But as a bit of a nerdy scientist, I wanted to know why something germinated in certain conditions and why things didn't. And I find that isn't written above quite an, about quite enough. So I still, uh, in all our interns, that's their first book they have to read <laughs> because it really made me understand um, horticulture. And so I, I think that's a wonderful book. And I go back to that. If I'm feeling like on my walk this morning, we were looking at the most incredibly beautiful honeysuckle in the hedge. And this great friend of mine who's a brilliant horticulturist said he's been trying to propagate honeysuckle again and again. And he keeps failing, even he's done it as a soft cutting, a harbour, da da da. And he, we met actually through Christopher Lloyd. And um, I just said, well, you know, you just look it up in Christo's book. But it will tell you why that honeysuckle is not. So I love that. Mm. Um, mm. And uh, I'm trying to think of more recent ones. Maybe I'll think while we're chatting yes, on the yeah, next yeah, question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going to say that there was. Um, Something that, that um, Vita Sackville West and Christopher Lloyd seem to share, which is they're not kind of, there's a sort of snobbery you can get about plants, isn't there? There's a Surely kind of, is. oh, we don't grow this anymore. Yeah. And they're, they're not like that at all. They will grow things that may or may not be considered weeds or come. I remember a Christopher Lloyd thing, and he really likes um, busy lizzies. Yes. He's fine about them. He says, grow them as a hedge. They're brilliant. Yes. Yeah, very much. He was an iconoclast, very much. Sometimes too much, so maybe. <laughs> I mean, pink and yellow aren't my favourite things if they're very strong together, but he absolutely was a big advocate of that. It can work, but it's quite challenging. Mm. And um, so, yeah, he sometimes pushed it too far. But, yeah, they definitely wanted to challenge our um, uh, garden snobbery, which the Brits are the worst for. I mean, like, you know, only 15 years ago, you couldn't grow a zinnia without people saying, ooh, yeah. Um, and you certainly couldn't grow a dahlia, you know, uh, yeah. apart from unless it was Bishop of Landaff, and that's because that the National it. Trust was... had it. Yeah, yeah, yeah just um, one. <laughs> so we were, we we were. Um, so I'm, I I like that too a bit. I mean, I'm a great championer championer of the gladioli, mm. and um, sadly, I know he is no longer with us. But I'm not talking about Dame Medna's style of glads. <laughs> uh, but there are really crazily glamorous gladioli. And um, they make, and, and by pure chance, because we mulch our dahlias and leave them in the ground um, at Perthshire, which you can do with climate change, very deeply, we actually, because of this minaret thing, so we're coming full circle here with the dome of the dahlia, we have mm. gladioli next to the dahlias, and they've been mulched by pure chance because they're next to the dahlia, and they have now perennialized. So I'm crazy oh. on glads, and I'm, doing a, I'm gonna do a big campaign next spring to. Yeah. resurrect the to, to bring them back yeah just i mean not just the, the classy snobby species ones but like the full-on the, the big blousy flora, big yeah. blousy go ones. for it ones yeah 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 they're wonderful That's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Eleanor Catton, Thea Lenarduzzi, Toby Lishtig and Sarah Raven. And of course, to the TLS for sponsoring these events and the Hay Festival for hosting them. And thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast produced by Charlotte Pardy. We'll be back next week. But for now, from Lucy Dallas and from me, Alex Clark, goodbye. 
Want truly hydrated skin? Meet Osea's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER.